Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Ben Savage, partner at Clock Tower Technology Ventures. Ben and his fund focuses on investing in fintech and financial services. As you could imagine, we're going to be talking about the consumer side to fintech. You'll also learn about how his time working under Ray Dalio at Bridgewater shaped him as an investor, why digitally native financial services haven't taken off as fast as digitally native brands, for example, and the opportunities that he sees in fractional ownership. Without further ado, here's Ben. Ben, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate you coming on. I'd love to first start out with your background, since you've had such a breadth of experience as an investor. What was your initial attraction to finance and, and, and how did you get started? Sure. So I graduated college in 1999, like another universe ago, and it was kind of the apex of the dot-com bubble. It was a, a time and place where the inmates were truly running the asylum and you know, 18-year-old kids were presumed to be world-beating experts on technology. So funny enough, I joined an investment bank, you know, classic kind of Wall Street career right out of college, but the bank happened to have a venture capital team that invested in tech startups. And I had always been a bit of a tech dork you know, as a kid, my dad worked for IBM. I was on bulletin boards back in the day and did some very, very limited coding, but was never really like that deep. I just loved newness and technology and innovation. And I got really excited about the idea that venture in particular was about building the future and creating jobs for people and helping generate companies that did really cool, interesting new things. And I kind of just fell in love with that idea really early. And the dot-com bubble in particular was this really unusual period in still in my experience as a professional investor where you could just dream big and everyone spent all their days just kind of visualizing what the future could be. It was constant ideation. I think the closest thing, ironically enough, today to what that felt like is actually when you get into it with sort of crypto or DeFi folks. The way they will talk about those things is very similar to how I think the whole, you know, investment and tech ecosystem talked about the internet in like 1999. And that was just really fun. So, you know, you sort of asked, how did I get into financial services? I kind of just was really interested in, in the internet and tech and innovation and that led me into financial services indirectly. That's awesome. And I totally can understand like that excitement that everyone has. Well, those that focus on crypto, how I can understand that in that late 90s, early 2000s, how people were so excited about the internet. And you can kind of you see that same level of enthusiasm there. I know also, you know, you worked at 
Bridgewater Associates. And on this program, we always ask each guest, what's one book that inspired you personally, one book that inspired you professionally, and principles usually comes up from people. And so I wanted to just understand, like, and as you now run your own venture capital fund and have been doing for years, but what was it like and what were some of the learnings working under Ray and working um, at Bridgewater Associates that really helped shape you as an investor or just as a person? So, you know, the way I always sort of think about Bridgewater with respect to this, and, and I actually wrote this in my sort of internal, like, farewell email when I left Bridgewater, the really great gift that I think the Bridgewater culture delivers to everyone who really jumps into the pond is the transparency with which you are supposed to deliver feedback to your peers, to your coworkers, is is really a gift. If you can sit on the other side of that and trust that the feedback comes at you from a good place, from people who are very sophisticated and who care about you. You know, most of the time we go through our lives and we don't actually get genuine feedback. Right? In the professional context, there's all these rules around what feedback can be given and how it can be given and who can give it. And it's sort of fraught with peril, actually. Like your subordinates are never going to give their bosses really honest feedback because the bosses have power over them. And the bosses don't necessarily give perfect feedback to subordinates, partially because they're lazy and don't want to do it or they don't know how to do it in a good way or they're also just going to be biased and not objective. And, you know, peers, it's often very political and it's hard to get feedback. In your personal life, I mean, everyone's got different relationships with their significant others, but there's only so much you can do in those kinds of dynamics and family dynamics. And even with your friends, it's most of the time people, I think, correctly go, you know what, it's just not in my self-interest to really give honest feedback to, to anyone. The only people who do it are honestly like just assholes who give it to store clerks and air, airline workers, you know, people when they're upset at their restaurant server, they like give honest feedback, right? Those people are jerks. So in, inside Bridgewater, I think the, the great gift is that you receive honest feedback from people who are in a position to know you well and give you actionable, intense, frequently very difficult to hear feedback. And it's encouraged. In fact, it's not just encouraged, it's actually demanded by that culture. And so if you can really embrace that, it becomes this incredibly powerful machine for evolving and iterating yourself. Because you can just run experiments. You can say, well, normally I would handle this interaction by doing X. Today I'm going to do Y and see how it goes and then get feedback on it in basically real time from your coworkers. That is an incredible luxury to have that experience. You know, and, and as investors, if you're in private markets, you, you very rarely get feedback from the market. If you're in public markets, you get very real time feedback. And a lot of when you talk to public market investors, they will tell you that that's kind of the best thing about being a public markets investor is the velocity of that feedback. And I think there's some validity to that. But just as a, as a person, both professionally and, and personally, living in a high feedback velocity culture is incredibly powerful. And in my experience, it's very, very rare. And I think that's ultimately the most valuable thing that Bridgewater can give you if you join the place. When you think about transparency feedback, 
how does that impact you as an investor when you deal with founders, whether it's being on a board or even when you haven't invested and you're sourcing or you're just talking with founders about about what they're going through? How has that affected you in just dealing with people in, in that capacity? It's a great question and you know one that I think we struggle a little bit with. You know, my instincts are still to be excessively honest with people. And, you know, I have a a good friend who has now been a venture capitalist professionally for a long time, maybe 16 years. And I remember when he first joined the venture firm that he now, you know, is one of the the managing partners of. And I said to him at the time, I said, you know, you're going to be an all-time great venture capitalist because you have this magic ability to take a meeting with an entrepreneur, tell them all the reasons their idea is is not going to work and how you're not going to invest in that founder. And they walk out of the meeting and they love you and think you're like the nicest guy ever. By contrast, I would do the same thing and take a meeting before I worked at Bridgewater and take a meeting with an entrepreneur and tell them why the idea was bad and why I wasn't going to invest. And they'd walk out and be like, what a jerk that guy was. Now, not all the time, but, but at a high enough frequency that there was something different about our style. And it continues to honestly be a challenge for us. I think what we've found today is that we have a way at Clock Tower, and some of this is simply I've surrounded myself with people who are just much more likable than I am at doing this, who can be honest and be transparent and be candid with founders. And it's a little bit of just who we are culturally. And it's a different look than I think many other VC firms give because venture as an industry in particular has gotten, the the mantra is be founder friendly. And in some cases that's really gone to an extreme where people just hold their cards close for fear of saying something to a founder that would then brand them as somehow unfriendly to founders, right? And I think we just sort of say from our first interactions, we're going to be nice about it, but we're going to be as honest as we possibly can. And some founders really like that, rise to that challenge. I'm sure there are founders that we offend and who dislike us. That's actually okay because it turns out to be a pretty good filter in the sense that we really want to do business with folks that want to do business with us where there's a mutual fit on style and how it's going to feel. And for us, really being direct and transparent and candid on the good and the bad is just integral to how we want to be. And we want founders who, even if they might not love everything we say, at least value the fact that we're going to behave that way and can sort of look past, you know, hey, we, we told them we thought that was a stupid idea. And sometimes we're investing anyway, right? But, but sometimes we'll just give honest feedback and say, look, here's why we're not participating. Some founders really appreciate it. Some founders really don't. That's okay. But I think what we've gotten... I'm not going to say better at, but we've just gotten more comfortable with is that if we can kind of stay on our side of the net, which is to say, we're not going to make assumptions about a company or a founder or what's in their head or in their heart. We're just going to take the facts they give us, the words they tell us, and try to play them back, make sure we agree on the the facts at hand, and then just assess those as objectively as we can. We are behaving in a way that's high integrity and transparent. And I think most founders actually end up appreciating it. You know, let's not say we always get right. And again, sometimes people just, it's oil and water, um, which again is why I, I really try to focus on making sure 
the other folks at Clock Tower are substantially more likable than I am. But to the extent we're able to do it, I think we've we've earned the reputation as being a place that's going to give you the straight dope. We're not going to bullshit you. And, and by the way, that may not matter in some cases, right? Because sometimes, and we are also very thoughtful about this, like VCs generally don't actually have that much useful things to say to founders at the end of the day. You know, I think if you're on the, the investor side of the table and you find yourself regularly dispensing advice about how to operate a company, you're sort of in the wrong job. Because it's actually operators who wear the risk of building companies and who sit there all day long trying to build something. VCs can't really, or at least in our view, shouldn't be giving that kind of advice. The, the good VCs, in our view, sort of give advice around, well, here's how to think about capital markets or hey, okay, you have a situation. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm going to try to just connect you to other folks who've lived that situation or maybe even just tell you a story about other times I've seen that situation because that's really the, the thing that investors have relative to operators is they see a portfolio of situations, whereas operators just see their situation. But it's a very different thing than, hey, I'm, I'm being honest with you and telling you what to do if that makes sense. There's a line in there of you can be honest and be critical, but do it in a way that's grounded in what you really know, as opposed to just pontificating about, well, here's what I think you should do, right? Which is unfortunately what a lot of VCs tend to do and why there's sometimes a bad, there's, there's memes about this on Twitter, you know, of VCs telling founders what to do. It's just not a good look at this point. Totally. When I had on Eamon Carey on the show, he said the best words are, I don't know. Those are the three words that he believes that should be used a lot more often. And I agree. Like The beauty about VC is one of the things you do have access to because of portfolios you have and just the people that you're able to network and, and meet is, is really the, the value is from that network. And so why not try to connect the founder, if it makes sense, to a person that actually has experienced that problem instead of trying to just give your own two cents when maybe don't even understand the problem itself. How did Clock Tower Technology Ventures come together and why did you have this fintech focus? Yeah, so we started CTV essentially because I had been through as a founder of a, a co-founder of a fintech startup, a fundraising experience where I discovered in really 2011 that there was at that time a hole in capital markets for early stage capital for financial innovation. There was just almost nobody really doing seed stage in particular, but also series A, financial services innovation. It was a backwater of the venture capital landscape. There were very few firms, very few partners within bigger firms that were willing to look at fintech. Um, and it was a, just in absolute terms, a very, very small dollar amount invested every year in financial services innovation. We were successful at raising money for the startup I was building at the time, but it took a really long time and it was an incredibly hard road to get there. And we pretty much talked to just about everybody who did fintech in 2011, 2012, which was not a long list. And I came away from that experience thinking, wow, you know, this is kind of nuts. This is one of the biggest sectors of our economy. It's, you know, today at Clock Tower Ventures, we, we look at something like 20 to 25% of GDP that 
is significantly underinvested in innovation, despite being an enormous category of market capitalization with very, very large profit pools. And it felt to me that just from a first principle economics point of view, this was unlikely to be a perpetual feature of reality. It just felt like something arbitrary and contingent. And that in particular, you could see the rise of a technology infrastructure layer that would break down the traditional barriers to scale and barriers to entry in financial services that would allow a kind of generational wave of, from a fundamental point of view, a generational wave of financial challengers to get born, provided there was capital to meet that opportunity. You know, we sort of have a mental model that if you inject capital into an ecosystem, it attracts ideas and talents, and then that in turn attracts financial capital, and you sort of get this virtuous cycle running. And I think we had a vision that you know, if there's one call I think we got right about the world, it was this, that you know, sometime around 2014-15, it was the beginning of what would be a very long super cycle of financial innovation and capital to, to meet financial innovation kicking off. We certainly weren't the only people who saw that and believed it, but we did really have that vision and so decided to launch a business to try to take advantage of that and participate in the growth of a financial innovation ecosystem over the next 20 years. So in some sense, that was really the, the founding narrative was I'd had this experience um, and come to believe from that that there was a gap in capital markets that would shrink. You fast forward to today, there's obviously a tremendous amount of money available for, for fintech and for financial innovation. But what's interesting about it is it's still actually not as much as there quote unquote should be. If you were to look at things like GDP or market cap weights relative to other sectors like tech or even life science, which are kind of the three big legs of the stool for venture capital these days. And so uh, we, we continue to actually be quite bullish about the secular amount of capital that's going to flow into financial services innovation. I appreciate you sharing that. Why do you believe it's taken so long for particularly consumer-oriented financial services to become adopted with D2C models? I think it's, a, it's an interesting question. And financials was, when we started in 2015, was really among the last big categories of the consumer experience to be meaningfully disrupted, right? And it actually continues, funny enough, to be that way. You know, you can pick almost any person in this country, even sort of relatively well-off millennials, and they're likely still using legacy financial brands somewhere in their lifestyle, which by contrast, if you looked at, you know, their apparel consumption or, you know, their media consumption or, you know, even their, their food or personal care consumption, they're going to use almost exclusively challenger brands. They're much less likely to use legacy brands. And in FinTech, there's a bunch of reasons why I think the, the legacy brands have persisted. One is simply trust. It takes a really long time to build trust in financial services. And there is a higher bar for me to send money. It's a bar that's gotten a lot lower as people have gotten more comfortable with the internet. But I can remember a time where most consumers were, were not totally sure they should plug their credit card number into a website. Right. That feels almost unimaginable today. But in 1999, like lots and lots of Americans didn't want to plug their card number into a website to just check out in e-commerce. Today, you kind of can't fathom that. But, but that was the world. And so 
Trust turns out to be a really important vector in financial services, and it is actually hard to build it. And there's just a wellspring, a reservoir of trust that got built in these iconic financial services brands that's constantly reified through mass media. Like Fidelity runs an awful lot of TV ads, right? And, and you can't help but, walk, but see them. Um, for all I know, they're probably running ads on TikTok at this point too. And like they've got, you know, 100 years or whatever it is, 80 years of building a brand for Fidelity. And it's an effective brand. It's like there's a bright, shining green line that appears underfoot. And you like follow the green line. It tells you what to do. There's a lot of trust embedded in that kind of brand. And the bar is just a little higher in financial services. Like it's different. You want to go buy a luxury T-shirt on an e-commerce site? Great. That's a pretty inexpensive risk for you to take. You don't have to trust that site or that brand all that much. You want to start banking with somebody. You want to, you know, start trading with somebody. You want to borrow from somebody. It is just a higher trust bar. So I think that's one big reason. The other is that, you know, it's taken a long time to get the infrastructure and scale, like at a scale where it makes it easy for you to do financial services as a startup. And so it wasn't just that you needed, you know, Amazon Web Services to kind of virtualize data centers. It wasn't just that you needed a foundational stack of technology to build customer service tooling and website analytics tooling and so forth that, that now exists to build almost any given startup. You needed beyond that a, what we call a fintech stack of companies that provide you know, hey, we can help you take deposits as a service. This kind of thing didn't exist even five years ago. And now if I wanted to launch, you know, Savage Bank and take deposits, I'd probably stand that up in eight weeks um, and issue a debit card and just accept deposits under the Savage Bank brand. That's like an unfathomable change from a speed to market point of view. On as little as four years ago, that would have taken you 12 months let alone 10 years ago where it might have taken you, you know, three years to get that in flight. Never mind 20 years ago where it would just, you, you would have been sort of laughed out of the room. You would have had to just actually go build a bank um, to do it. And, and so there's an infrastructure layer that's just now coming together that's allowing for a much faster pro proliferation of D2C brands. And I think much like there was this explosion and it was a lot of friends of mine who helped catalyze it. I was a very, very early investor uh, in the seed round of Bonobos. And, you know, Andy and Brian helped catalyze the generation of digitally native vertical brands by pioneering a model and leveraging infrastructure for that. And then there was this, like, explosion from, like, 2007 to 2012, 2013 of, like, online D2C brands. You might see something very similar start to play out here in financial services now that there's an infrastructure layer and there are pioneers that have proven it over the last several years. Yeah, no, those are all great points. I'm glad you brought up Andy. I'm actually going to be interviewing him Friday from Bonobos. But on the infrastructure layer, I obviously we've seen what's happened around the world with frictionless payments. And of course, that's certainly accelerated e-commerce just to make it a lot easier for the consumer. What do you think about the infrastructure here when it comes to e-commerce relating to fintech? What kind of questions are you asking yourself? And when do you think we're going to see maybe a system, if we're going to see a system similar to maybe what China has with, with Alipay? So there's, there's a lot to unpack in this topic. So payments 
is really the first financial service that everybody experiences, right? You're a kid, your, your parent hands you a $5 bill to go into the candy store. You buy something. That is it. That is financial services. It's the first experience you've ever had. It's possible saving money was your first experience. Like your, your grandfather gives you a quarter or whatever it is and you put it in a piggy bank, but you don't even really understand what that is until you actually go spend the money, right? And then boom, you've experienced the power of financial services of disintermediated store of value and a transaction and friction associated with that transaction and trust and consumption all packaged into one thing. So payments is this like quintessential financial experience. Um, obviously in the modern world, payments has evolved to become as frictionless as possible in many cases. And in certain jurisdictions, like, like you mentioned China, where the payment rails are so seamless and so integrated with credit and the, the visceral experience of payment is so quick that it has changed a lot of consumptive patterns. And there's a lot of really good academic research that when you stop paying with cash and you start paying digitally, you've actually lost a very valuable piece of friction. You spend more, you're quicker to make payment decisions, you buy more luxury goods, you actually get less satisfaction from the things you buy, interestingly enough. And there's, from a business standpoint, hey, that's great. Like, if I take your cash and I stick it all on your phone, you're going to spend more money. And because it's digital, there's some interchange rate that's occurring. There's some VIG I extract as a middleman. I want you to spend, 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 spend more money because I make more money as a company. From a sort of civilizational perspective, though, from a what a regulator would call a macro prudential point of view, it's actually not that optimal to have all the spending kind of work that way. In a country like China, where there isn't the same infrastructure for spending um, that existed, and they have this tremendous appetite for control, digital payments is going to be really powerful. And they're eventually going to move away from Alipay and QR payments. Uh, well, QR is actually a form factor. It will move off Alipay into, frankly, a central bank regulated payment method through their version of, of digital currency, their version of crypto, which is all going to be centralized and controlled by the Bank of China. I think in the West, there are some reasons that they're going to want, regulators will end up putting speed bumps on digital payments because it gets too easy to get yourself in trouble. Buy now, pay later is a pretty good example of this, actually, where consumers use buy now, pay later, frankly, to overspend above and beyond the kind of credit limits that exist in many cases on a, on a fully underwritten kind of card product. And while the good news is a lot of the buy now, pay later stuff has sort of smaller limits and they can turn it off if you haven't repaid it. When you really dig into the behavior of what people are doing with it, it's encouraging a kind of higher level of consumption and spend than you otherwise might want. And it disincentivizes savings behavior in many ways, which ultimately for sort of the long-term health of the consumer balance sheet, like most of like classical economics would tell you, you, you kind of want relatively, you don't want too high, but you also don't want nothing from a savings rate standpoint. Um, so, you know, I think in the U.S. where we're headed is actually there will be progressively more frictionless payments. You can already do it at certain gas stations where you kind of just show up and like sort of wave your your phone at the, the console and it pays. You're going to get, I think, 
In the U.S., you'll actually get voice payments that happen fast because the power of, of the Alexa and sort of Siri and Google Home experiences for really affluent consumers is pretty substantial. And the convenience associated with voice-driven commerce in particular is so high that um, it will actually, I think, become a driver of payments. But also wearables will start to become real drivers. Like right now, it's on your phone. It's kind of clunky that Apple Pay and Google Pay work on your phone. As we get more integration into rings and watches and God knows whatever is going to come down, AR goggles and things like that, all of this will end up, I think, driving that integration of payment experiences, of really next-generation payment experiences. But I think what's more interesting than like the sort of physical experience of the payment is where it's going to come from, right? Like right now, payments for most consumers boil down to it's either a credit card or a debit card, right? So it's either hitting your bank account or it's hitting some credit line. Now, maybe buy now, pay later, it will continue to gain share because it lives outside of those rails. But I think what's more interesting is that all of your assets from a payment perspective should in some sense be consolidated. So what I mean by this is we have, an, we have a company, um, an investment in a company called M1 Finance, which is a, a kind of consumer brokerage business. And um, if you're an M1 customer, you have an equity account. You have a stock trading account, just like a Robinhood customer would have. If you think about paying for something, you could pay for it on credit or you could pay for it on debit and then defease that liability with cash that you have in some cash account. But like, why can't you just lever your stocks, right? I mean, why doesn't Robinhood let you have a sort of Robinhood-linked debit card or credit card where you just borrow against the value of your equity position, which already has some degree of leverage in it, most likely, sort of if you're like a Robinhood Gold customer or an M1 Plus customer, you've borrowed to lever up, but you haven't levered against the full value of your equity portfolio. And the rate on that credit is definitively going to be lower than the rate you're going to pay on your Chase Sapphire card or whatever other credit card you might use if you're sort of a, an affluent consumer. And so I think what will really end up happening with payments is a tighter integration of the credit experience, which is actually how most affluent consumers buy, um, with a more holistic view of your financials so that you're essentially arbitraging down the cost of payments. Because it's like you just forgot to auto pay your credit card bill in a given month, you've, like charged in, you've been charged interest at a rate that's almost certainly too high for like affluent consumers. And then for lower end folks, they're also getting charged way too high rates on credit like across the board for a variety of structural factors. And I think as these inefficiencies get driven out of the system, like the traditional payment experience kind of just disappears um, because you, whatever form factor you end up viscerally paying with, it's the integration on the back that actually matters, that connects your payment experiences to some sort of holistic view of your financial profile to make sure that you're not sort of overpaying for that payment experience. And that then brings back in the kind of governors on spend that historically would have been there through the frictions associated with cash. 
that's really, really fascinating. Um, and so I guess what we're going to see, especially on the credit side, is a lot of the percentages and fees and, and APRs kind of go down and be forced to go down because of all these other options that you're going to be seeing. Absolutely. I mean, th- there are entire business models that are basically built on late fees, right? And the reality is there should be no late fees anymore. Tech should, ha- at this point, like, should just there should be no late fees because automation can largely solve any late fee problem. Any bill you get that's got a date you've got to pay something on, whether you have the money or not, there are tech solutions that can make that payment on your behalf And if that means you have to borrow to make the minimum payment, so be it. But no one should really ever pay late fees. And there's this tremendous inefficiency around late fees. There's a tremendous inefficiency around NSF fees uh, for banks. And fintechs have gotten rid of that pretty quickly. But the late fee problem is still real. And from a credit perspective, a lot of credit companies like really earn their living on late fees. That will go away. And it will change the math. I think, on a whole bunch of these products over the next decade. What are some interesting or clever ways that some of these aspiring, disruptive consumer financial services are able to build trust with customers quite quickly? Yeah, it's a good question. I would say there's a a whole range of ways trust gets built, right? Interestingly, what you're starting to see now is what I would characterize as very, very traditional ways of building trust be applied to financial services. So like celebrity spokespeople turned out to become a really standard way for fintechs to go build trust. And you see it in lots of challenger banks today, whether it's, you know, famous actors or sports figures becoming endorsers functionally of challenger banks to, you know, TikTok and Instagram influencer stars um, becoming Uh, endorsers, if you will, and faces for fintech brands um, done at both big scale, like really prominent influencers, all the way down to micro influencers. And there's a pretty robust infrastructure now where, you know, all kinds of niche micro influencers, frankly, get paid to endorse fintech products. It's not just fintech, obviously, this is happening across the C complex, but fintech is starting to catch up to that. And you also see traditional brand advertisements. You know, when you see a Robinhood ad on TV, it helps make you trust Robinhood. It's like, oh, they're on TV. Or you see that SoFi sponsored the stadium in Los Angeles, or that Chime is the logo sponsor for the Dallas Mavericks. If you're a consumer, you know, there's a like almost subconscious thing that, oh, if they've sponsored that, they must be like a real company. So I can trust it a little bit more. And this is just old school kind of marketing, brand marketing. That's not really any different from the way things worked, you know, a long time ago. I think in, in FinTech though, like the ultimate way to deliver trust is actually by delivering a great experience. And it's an interesting category. Like it's sort of hard if you think about in, in a lot of classic D2C categories, you know, I, I mentioned Bonobos, like I might sell you a better pair of pants and the product is actually superior to the pair of pants you might have gotten had you walked over to the mall. But like, at the end of the day, like how much of a delta can you really render in pants, right? Like, it's, it's going to be better, and it is better, and what they built was awesome, and don't get me wrong, but it's a pair of pants. Um, by contrast, the experience you get dealing with your auto insurance company 
which is like not going to be that great of an experience, there's a lot of room to make that way, way better. And so the products themselves, in a funny way, engender trust in a way that I think is more difficult for categories outside of financial experiences. And the best example of this is around the PPP loans and kind of the way things played out under the pandemic, where a bunch of fintech startups did a much better job than the legacy players at actually getting people who needed it money. And like, how, what better way is there to build trust, right? Um, Then I got you the money you needed when you needed it. And that other guy couldn't. That's incredibly powerful. Yeah, no, that's a great point about the uh, PPP loans. I also wanted to take some time, too, to talk about this new era of what's an investable asset. How are you thinking about this current era? Now it seems like you can invest in so many different products, but what is currently, I guess, your views on this current kind of point in time we are now with investing in different assets, and as well as what's currently not investable that you think could become investable in the future? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say we have a very long-term view that the nature of markets is going to evolve substantially over the next 50 years to encompass a much wider range of tradable wealth than is currently encompassed. Um, And you see it in the early days today in things like StockX or Masterworks or Rally where these are businesses that allow consumers to essentially invest in collectibles as asset classes. But I think what people perhaps don't fully realize, or many folks don't, is that um, Airbnb has also essentially unlocked a new source of wealth and a new tradable asset class, which is that my guest bedroom was not really something I could monetize prior to Airbnb. And now it actually becomes a kind of tradable asset in that I could rent out my guest bedroom or my guest house to total strangers and earn an income stream on that. And if you can earn an income stream on something, you can NPV that thing and you could securitize it. And I think at some point in the next decade, you will see people quite literally sell fractional interest in their like guest houses um, and just trade that because it becomes an income stream like anything else that can be securitized and traded. And it, frankly, should factor into my mortgage. If I have a guest house and I can monetize that on Airbnb, that's income that should count in sort of my DTI ratios for buying a house. And it doesn't work that way today, but it will, where we'll be able to look at assets and look at the income value potentially attached to those. I frankly think when people go to buy cars, you know, if you're willing to push a button and send it into Uber mode, um, where it becomes a taxi, it, like once you have self-driving cars in some number of years, that will factor into you know the rate that you get on your car, right, from a credit perspective, because it makes it a better credit in some respect. So all that is to say, technology is allowing us to turn more assets into tradable wealth and then create markets around those assets, whether it's fractional uses of your home or your car, or it's your closet that you can now sell, or your art collection, or there's, I mean, there's an interesting company called VinoVest that allows you to invest in wine. I mean, just on and on. It's like everything is becoming a tradable asset. The size of these markets is still an interesting question, but I think there are probably two really big markets that will continue to get securitized and turned into tradable assets. The first of those is what I'd characterize as small business equity. Your favorite corner pizzeria 
Like, why can't you sort of buy equity in that thing? Why can't you help that small business owner get credit by being a super fan of that business and, and helping kind of trade in the value of that store? There's a bunch of reasons why historically it would have been very hard to do that. And like, let's say you wanted to go open a restaurant tomorrow, Mike, um, the way you'd raise money for that restaurant is really antiquated. You, banks will never give you the money anymore. You'd have to go find rich people in a very manual way to like invest in your restaurant. You'd have to know those people. It's, it's hard, but there's really no reason that tech can't help support that um, and create an investable asset class of small businesses in this country. And there's a lot of institutions that would love to do that. Like I think the state of California uh, government pension board should like back California small businesses and they should figure out a way to leverage tech to just say, yeah, we're going to invest a little bit of money in anybody who wants to open a restaurant in California uh, or something like that on inequity or in credit. Um, and at this point, tech could help support that sort of thing. It just hasn't done it. But I'll tell you the biggest asset class that I think is going to become tradable is actually labor. And it's the single biggest source of wealth on, on the world that's not securitized. There are really interesting developments around uh, income sharing agreements or ISAs are sort of credit-like instruments where there's a variable payback based on your earnings. And it's a better alternative to student loans and other many forms of fixed repayment debt in many ways. And I think we will see over time this market become very, very large. Uh, and there's some squishy things around capitalization of labor that, you know, require us to, to think very carefully and require a lot of regulation to make sure that there aren't abuses. But there's already actually fundamentally a, a very unequal playing field when it comes to labor. One of the things we talk about a lot is uh, the fact that most people are paid sort of on a biweekly payroll cycle. You actually work for free for two weeks and then you get paid. Your employer gets the float on what is essentially your income for two weeks. Like we settle stock trades that like one day after I agree to sell you some stock. And yet it takes two weeks to settle my labor trade with most employers. Um, that feels really weird. You should be able to get paid instantly um, because there's no real reason that it takes two weeks to process payroll at this point. The tech could, is capable of doing it instantaneously, especially for hourly workers. And yet it doesn't happen. And so these kinds of things will get ultimately resolved in favor of workers where you need that money faster. Again, late fees, a lot of the late fee problem is because lower income people are paid every two weeks, but their bills aren't every two weeks. And like, that's really a deeply inefficient problem in our civilization that I think will go away. And some of that will go away in part because you'll be able to functionally trade your labor and trade the expected value of your labor in ways that actually accrue to the benefit of consumers over time, whether through an income share agreement or through all kinds of other possible structures. It just hasn't happened yet. That makes a lot of sense in terms of, as well as how you think about the biggest opportunity in that labor is actually um, investable. It's not something that I actually thought about before this conversation. So that's um, that's really interesting. And they say that the future of consumer is fintech. And I'm also just curious, what do you think, since you were super early in fintech, especially at the seed stage and, and very early stage, what do you think investors still don't quite understand, the majority of investors still might not understand about fintech? To be honest with you, I think they don't understand how big it's going to be, which sounds kind of crazy given how big it seemingly already is. But you know, financial services have grown its share of GDP 
for more than 50 years in this country. And that, that trend, I don't think, is changing. As our economy matures, becomes progressively more of a services economy, I actually think that the financial share of GDP will continue to grow over time. And I think the aggregate size of the financial services industry um, will grow even as costs are driven out of it. And I think if you look at the market capitalization of financial services relative to their earnings, relative to their revenues, and certainly relative to something like the tech sector, it seems very, very clear that there's a lot of upward room for financial services market cap to grow. And I think a lot of that growth will come from fintech challengers over the next, you know, many decades. And so, you know, consumer is an enormous category and all the D2C consumer businesses that have been built around personal care and, you know, furniture and apparel and pick, you know, anything you're going to buy, mobility can be really big businesses. But in many respects, it's actually way easier to build a billion-dollar value financial services business than it is to build a billion-dollar sort of like D2C e-commerce business, right? Partially because historically it was just harder to do it, um, but partially because the profits are generally thicker, Um, like the margin structures are higher. And I think those margins are actually going up counterintuitively in financial services. So I think the fundamental story is that there's going to be bigger and bigger outcomes in financial services for investors, but also from a capital flow point, there's going to be more and more money pouring into financial services. Whereas I think in lots of other categories of consumer, it just gets harder to invest in D2C stories because there are some incredibly large incumbents and competitors that have really massive scale benefits. It's very difficult to compete against Amazon, very difficult to compete against Apple, you know, um, for that matter, very difficult to compete against Peloton. But even in the, the challenger fintech brands that are really winning, they're just not, these are not winner take all or even winner take most markets because the nature of the brands are different. Um, and the size of the markets are so big, like every single person on planet earth consumes financial services. It is actually a bigger market than you know, almost anything else you see on the consumer side. And for clarity, the margins are going to go up because we still haven't hit scale yet. Is that why? Yeah. And because they're just better businesses like fintech companies that are built. I mean, it's really a simple example. Challenger banks don't have branches. Okay. Like challenger insurance companies don't have field offices. There's a lot of cost right there that just goes out the window. And, you know, and the fulfillment is all digital. So in theory, Amazon is like a better business than a department store because they don't have department stores, but they still have these like massive facilities that hold all the goods, right? They got to actually build warehouses and then they got to deliver a bunch of crap to your door. I don't have to do that if I'm running an insurance company. Like it's insurance. There's nothing to deliver. I don't have to hire UPS, right? I don't have to build Amazon logistics. It's a virtual good. It's totally digital. And so if anything, the, the perplexing bit is why did insurance still get sold with like physical agencies that you needed to go visit in every town in this country for as long as it did? And I think it circles back to that conversation you and I were having, which is that, you know, insurance, it took a while before you could trust, you know what, I can just buy it online. I, I used to want to walk in and sit across from somebody. It's kind of a confusing product. I didn't buy it all that often. 
it, it mattered a little bit more than buying a pair of shoes online. Although even that took a while before people got comfortable like buying shoes and used to want to go to a shoe store to try it on. Now it's like, whatever, just send it to me. I'll, I'll, if it doesn't fit, I'll send it back. But there's that, that cost just replaced the cost of the shoe store. Insurance, like there's nothing that replaces the cost of that, that brokerage office. Like it just goes away um, because now I can have anybody be a broker. I mean, you know, you talk about the impact of pandemic and Zoom and remote work. It's like insurance brokers can live anywhere on God's green earth and sell you an insurance policy. You don't need to be in, in a, a, a state farm office or around the corner from you. So I think like there's just a lot of cost in the financial services industry that goes out the door. Never mind the fact that most people in financial services are massively overpaid for what they actually do. And tech will drive a lot of them just simply away. Like the jobs just vanish and are replaced by tech. And that is a hugely profit enhancing um, function in financial services. I also wanted to talk, I know we don't have too much time, but maybe we can can talk a little bit about Latin America and why I know that that's one of your focus areas. I want to just understand on a macro level, why is fintech in Latin America so interesting to you? Yeah, sure. Two big reasons. Um, The first is that the fundamentals of tech in Latin America are incredibly interesting. You have a very young population that is more tech savvy and particularly more mobile savvy than almost anywhere else in the world. You have a demographic curve that looks very skewed in favor of digital brands and and sort of digital use cases for consumers. And you have a tremendous engine for long-term economic growth. This is a part of the world that has been through a lot of geopolitical difficulties, has been through a lot of currency difficulties over the past sort of 20 years. And at this exact moment in time, the currencies are relatively cheap. They're entering a geopolitical cycle that's very favorable for Latin America. And there are global inflation trends that are actually very favorable for LATAM relative to sort of a, a future potential Cold War um, between sort of China's sphere of influence and a, and a U.S. sphere of influence. Latin America is a bit of neutral territory in that contest. That's actually just set up for a lot of powerful economic growth over the next cycle, in particular, looking at the relative prevalence of tech in the Latin American economy and market cap, there's lots of reasons to think that it actually looks a lot like China sort of 10 or 15 years ago, where we might fast forward a decade and tech becomes this enormous part of the market cap in the region that it has not yet ever really been. But on the that's one. And two, when it comes to financial services, it's shocking how bad the situation is and for, for consumers today, which is that Banks and insurance companies in LATAM are the most profitable in the world because they are oligopolies that focus on a relatively narrow set of consumers and don't really deliver a particularly high-quality experience. They focus on essentially affluent, rich people, and you see it in penetration statistics. You know, the number of folks who have access to credit cards in Latin America is staggeringly low. The, the number of folks who have access even to bank accounts in Latin America is much lower than almost any other developing region of the world, certainly relative to wealth levels. If you plot it, it's, it's just incredible, the, the size of the underbanked ecosystem. And so there's a really profound opportunity for financial challengers to come in and say, we can just serve this very large population that is fundamentally outside the existing financial services ecosystem, give them access to credit, give them access to payments, give them access to banking services, give them access to insurance, give them access to broking that they otherwise wouldn't have had access to in a low-cost digital way with a high-caliber experience and just grow sensationally fast. 
as a result of that. On the flip side of it, you can actually just go after the incumbents directly and say, you're running a business that is just a fat target for disruption because you have excess profits in a stable oligopoly where you haven't had to innovate that much to keep your customers. Because it's just, eh, there's a lot of just, frankly, like laziness and momentum in these businesses. You know, you talk about people who are overpaid, you know, the folks who work at like the incumbents in Latin America, like meet this definition to a T. It sort of looks like, you know, the sort of 1980s in many ways in some of these cultures. And the innovators are just coming for these people's lunch. And it's happening at an accelerated pace in the region. Um, and we're just incredibly excited to see what's going on there. there there's a, a wellspring, that flywheel I mentioned earlier of you put capital into an ecosystem and talent and shows up, sort of take advantage of it. It's remarkable the caliber of, of entrepreneurs that we're finding in Latin America now that there's capital to go build things. And the first half of this year has been by a significant margin, the, the biggest quotient of fintech venture that's ever been delivered into Latin America. It's tremendously exciting. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I mean, I guess just to sum it up, it seems like in terms of the actual customer base or consumer base, these are very, very tech-savvy uh, populations that are mobile first. And you couple that with not having actually um, accessibility to banking services. So I can understand how that's a massive opportunity. Ben, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Really a delight to be here and you know have a, a ton of respect for what you do and, and really enjoyed it. Would love to uh, love to come back. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Ben. I hope you all enjoyed this as much as I did. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.